0: How's everybody this morning? Good, good, good. Before we turn to God's Word, uh, just a couple things real quick. Uh, If you need a Bible this morning, uh, some lovely ladies in the aisles who are coming down with Bibles, so just raise your hand and we would be happy to have you use one this morning. If you are visiting with us uh, and you don't have a Bible of your own and you would like one, Please accept that Bible as our gift to you. Uh, go ahead and write your name in it uh, and, and take it home and treasure it and read it. Bring it back with you next Sunday because uh, we're not going to give you one every week. But no. <laughs> Bring it back with you next Sunday as we keep digging into God's word together. We would love for you to have God's word. Uh, also, I, I want to uh, recognize a couple of folks uh, who are joining us this morning um, in worship. Uh, Brother, it's Ken, right? Tom, Pastor Tom from uh, down in Virginia, planting a church in Virginia. We're so glad to have you with us, brother. Yeah, amen. Encourage him in his labors. I I know what a blessing it is to uh, sit under somebody else's preaching for a little while and have a Sunday off, and so we're glad that uh, you could do that with us this morning. And also a a friend of of some of us uh, who have known her for a number of years, and definitely a a member of the Schmucker family, our sister Jantling. How are you, Janlin? Good. Praise the Lord! It's, it's great to have you with us this morning. So good to see you again. Amen. Who else? I miss anybody else? Anybody else feeling special? Ought to be recognized? Huh? Stephanie feels special. I saw somebody being pointed at over here. Who's being pointed at? Okay. All right. Somebody's being pointed at. I'll find you later. <laughs> Praise be to God. Well, this morning, before we get to the text, anybody want to recite Colossians 2, 8 to 15 for us? Colossians 2, 8 to 15. Chris? All right. Thank you, love. Amen. Yeah, encourage it. Encourage it. Amen. 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 Anybody else this morning want to give it a crack? Everybody, like, no, nah, that's good right there. That's good. Let's just leave that right there. Amen. Amen. Colossians two. But well, let me offer a word of prayer for us this morning. We we'll turn to God's word. Father, indeed, we ask that you would hide your word in our hearts we might not sin against you. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would shape us by your word so that we would conform more fully to the likeness of your Son. And all this begins by hearing with faith. And so would you this morning enable us by your Spirit to hear your word mixed with faith. And would you grant, O oh Lord, that in hearing your word, Our souls might be delighted in the Christ revealed here. Help us love Jesus, we pray, by your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Recently, the the folks over at Pew did another one of their surveys, one of their studies that caught my attention that I found interesting. It asked the question basically, I'm paraphrasing, in your lifetime, Name or list the 10 most significant events that have happened in the country. How would you answer that question? 72% of people, if I recall correctly, referred to 9-11 as the most significant event that's happened in their lifetime in the country. 40% referred to, and that was number two in order, uh, referred to the election of President Obama as the most significant event in their lifetime. Number three, anybody want to take a guess? JFK was a little bit later. Number three was the internet and all the things that go with the internet, cell phones and all that good stuff. And on the list went. Now the interesting thing you learned was that the percentages decreased, of course, as they were ranked in order, and and the most important events as you went sort of down the list were further away. So there's clearly some measure of age in that too. So some folks remember JFK as the most important event in their lifetime to happen in the country. Here's what was interesting to me, and it's kind of unfair to the survey. I want to acknowledge that right up front because of the way the question was asked. But here's what's interesting to me. No one apparently listed any significant spiritual events in the survey. They all had to do with wars and rumors of war. They all had to do with technology and inventions. But but nobody listed anything religious. That's striking, because clearly one of the most significant factors in the world today is religion, and clashes of religion. And if you believe the surveys, most people will report, if they are religious, that that's the most important thing to them in their lives. And so I'm kind of left with the question, why did they not, those answers, not appear on the survey? Here's a thought. I think maybe, apart from the way the question was worded, again, to be fair, I think maybe those kinds of answers, religious answers, don't appear on those kinds of questions because of the gap that we live in. We live in a gap between the truths that we hold and our experience of them. If you ask a Christian, who's the greatest figure ever to grace the planet? What's the greatest event ever to happen in the history of the world? A Christian is going to say, Jesus and the cross. And and if you ask him, well, why is that the most important thing? The Christian is going to say, because that's where my salvation was accomplished. That's where God proved his love for the world. That's where even the calendar was changed. And I'm forgiven. And I have eternal life. And I'm going to heaven. And if you ask the Christian the next question, those things you believe, how often do you feel them? Well, then you get a pain silence. Because if we're honest, we all live in that gap between what we know to be true and our enjoyment and experience of it. And this is why when we come to Colossians chapter 2 and Paul begins to warn the Colossians against being taken away to other philosophies, this is why that's even possible. To be sort of taken away from Christ to something else is only possible because we live in this gap, in this gap between the truths that we hold and our experience of them and the sneaking, whispering temptation to think either, is this all there is? Or I must need more than Jesus. That's how false teaching gets its hold on God's people. It exploits the gap. And the question is, how do we close the gap? And I want to suggest to you from Colossians chapter 2, this one main point. If you're taking notes, this is the whole of the sermon in one sentence. uh, And this sentence is in three parts, and that's the outline for the sermon. So here we go, this one main point. We must protect our freedom in Christ... We must protect our freedom in Christ. That's going to be point number one, verse 8. In order to enjoy our union with Christ. In order to enjoy our union with Christ. That's the second point of the sermon, verses 9 to 12. And maintain our victory through Christ. And maintain our victory through Christ. Verses 13 to 15. Hear again the word of the Lord. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now you'll recall the context in Colossians. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church that he has never visited. He's gotten a report from a colleague in the ministry named Epaphras. And Epaphras has explained to them that they are a church that is in good order and a people who are full of faith and they demonstrate their faith in how they love one another. And so Paul has been encouraged by that part of the report. But apparently Paul has also been hit to the fact that there's some people in Colossae who are teaching false things. And, and this false teaching, it is implied at least from the letter, has something to do with saying you need more than Jesus in order to have the full life. And Paul is in the middle of sort of writing to them about this so-called wisdom. And you remember last week in Colossians 2, verse 3, he reminded them that God's wisdom is hidden in Christ. It's in Christ that we have all uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he's continuing that argument throughout the rest of chapter 2, and we're parachuting in in verse 8. And this is what he says in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and vain deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I feel the urgency of that command. Paul says, see, see to it. it. I just hear my mama's voice. When she ever she would say, see to it, hey, <laughs> you know, if you didn't see to it, you at DEFCON 4, man. It's just see to it, watch out. Make sure no one takes you captive. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's the only time that verb is used in the New Testament. That verb for take you captive. What does it bring to mind for you? It made me think of kidnappings, it made me think of slave trading, or maybe the sunken place. <laughs> it take you captive is, is actually a, a violent, aggressive act. So so verse 8 acts as a kind of spiritual amber alert. The Bible warns that there are those who would like nothing more than to to ambush you and carry you off. So so God calls us to to watch out, or we might find ourselves enslaved rather than living free. notice how that captivity happens. It's through philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Philosophy, as you know, is just a compound Greek word from phylos, meaning love, and sophia, meaning wisdom, the love of wisdom. Philosophy is the word that we use for the wisdom of mankind, and and every philosophy represents to its followers a, a view of how the world works and how they should live in it. You may have another translation, the King James, that talks about vain and empty philosophy. I heard the King James say amen out there. In other words, this philosophy has nothing in it. It's empty of value. And more than that, it deceives and it enslaves It leads people into captivity. But notice where such a philosophy comes from. It is according to human tradition. In other words, the philosophy does not come from God or agree with God, but it comes from man and it agrees with the traditions of men. Now it would be easy here to think of this verse as a warning against secular philosophy over and against religion. And and, and it is including that warning, but that's not primarily what Paul is doing here. Here the Bible is rejecting religious philosophy that religious folks develop. He's writing to the church based on human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world. In, In other words, there is a way of being religious that is quite man-centered and worldly. Diagnosing that is critical for Christian freedom. And so Paul gives us a way to do it. Here's the clue. Religious worldliness depends not on God for its power or wisdom, but on human ideas and strength. We have a brilliant example of this, don't we? From the Gospels our Lord's life, don't we? So keep your finger in Colossians 2. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. Jesus is having one of his many exchanges with the Pharisees who are always trying to trap him into something that they think is wrong and thereby condemn him. And and notice, notice how Jesus speaks about God's word and human tradition. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, I imagine their hands were on their hips. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Well, they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, <laughs> clap back right here. Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, what, would you, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. Notice, so for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Or as the King James puts it, the tradition of men had made the word of God of no effect. See, the Pharisees thought their traditions were keeping and applying the commandments of God. These are the Bible people. These are good people. They they sought to be holy as they understood it. And they had developed an entire religious system of do's and don'ts that they thought were the application of God's word in the pursuit of holiness. But in the process, they developed human traditions, man-made regulations, which had the opposite effect of making God's word powerless to people. That's the kind of thing Paul has in mind in Colossians 2 when he warns us against being taken captive by philosophy that's built on human tradition. But what about the elemental spirits of the world? What in the world is Paul talking about there? The elemental spirits of the world is a phrase that only Paul uses. He uses it to describe the, the kind of basic building blocks of the world system, the fallen world that we live in. So this philosophy does not come from or embody the values of God's kingdom, but it comes from and embodies the values of this corrupt, broken, fallen, sinful world. And Paul was dealing with this as he dealt with the churches. So in addition to Colossians 2, where that phrase is used twice, he used it also over in Galatians chapter 4. And you remember in Galatians, he's dealing with a church that's facing a very similar struggle as Colossae. A church where there are some some teachers who come into the church who we believe to have been formerly Jewish, now Christians, who are teaching the folks there that in order to really be a Christian, you've got to first go back and be circumcised in order to enter the covenant, the old covenant of Israel, and then, you know, trust in Christ and believe in Christ. So they were adding circumcision to the gospel, believing that the law in that point needed to be honored. And in Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 and 10, you can look that with me if you like. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes to them using this phrase. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless worthless elementary principles of the world, whose who slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Now what's striking about Paul's words there is keep in mind what he's talking about. He's talking about people turning back to the law for their justification. And he is now classing the law in pursuit of justification under this phrase, weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. So even the wrong use of God's law in service to the wrong objective justification by your own righteousness is a part of the way the world thinks, not the way God thinks. It's a part of the elementary principles of the world. But not just justification. If you say this to Christians, listen, you are not justified by anything that you do. Every Bible-believing, gospel-believing Christian goes, amen, brother, I believe that. But then this is what happens. they then sort of insert, not at justification, but in sanctification, their man-made rules. And so not as a grounds for your acceptance with God, but as a grounds for your being pleasing to God and growing in God we have a stubborn tendency to add to the Word of God. So look down in Colossians chapter 2 now. Now This is the other place near the end of this chapter where Paul uses that phrase. And he's here talking now not about justification, but about sanctification. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. He says there, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world. I'm going to come back to that later. But notice the assumption. You are dead to the world if you're a Christian. If with Christ you die to the elementary spirits of the world, here's this question. Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, notice, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. We'll come to this passage, Lord's willing, in a couple of weeks and give it extended attention, but notice Paul's assumption. Christians have died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world. So now we must think of ourselves as dead to the world along with its regulations and rules. Those regulations and rules depend on human precepts and teaching rather than God's wisdom. And notice now, they are, they are powerless to actually stop the flesh from pursuing what the flesh wants. Those man-made rules are powerless for actually destroying the sin nature, keeping it from indulging. So, sanctification cannot be attained by worldly religiosity that depends on man-made religion and rules any more than justification can. See, seeking sanctification by man's rules ends up in slavery to those rules. Whoever you serve will be your master. Whether you serve man-made regulations that take you captive or the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ who frees you. Now, notice that last phrase in Colossians 2, verse 8. Paul writes the last phrase of verse 8, not according to Christ. He's not only telling us in this sentence that worldly religiosity does not come from Christ, he is at the same time teaching us that if we are Christians, we are meant to be slaves to Christ. We're not slaves to the world and its system, but we are slaves to the Lord who purchased us with his blood. Now, if you have a philosophy that leads you to Christ, keep that philosophy. If you have a philosophy that makes Christ great and sufficient and makes Christ Lord, it makes that a dear truth to you that brings you into his gentle yoke, keep that philosophy. That's what Paul is arguing in chapter 2, that Christ is our wisdom, that Christ is our philosophy, that he has freed us and justified us, and we'll see later in chapter 2, he is the one who will sanctify us. Now, Paul says that explicitly elsewhere, so again, keep your finger in Colossians 2 and look with me over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 16 to 31, Paul is contrasting worldly wisdom with Christ. Christ. And he's telling us that those are two irreconcilable things. But notice how he sums it up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. There, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this, because of him, referring to God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, if you're a Christian, who became to us wisdom from God. Then he explains what he means. He became to us wisdom from God, that is, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Christ is the whole of our salvation. From the moment that we are justified by faith in Christ, as we turn to him in repentance, throughout the sort of whole course of our lives, as we are growing in sanctification, to the end of our salvation, which is redemption and glorification with Christ. All of it is accomplished by Christ. That's what it means for him to be our wisdom. And so the goal of Christian living and the goal of Christian ministry is to be conformed more and more to Christ. Notice how Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 5. You there with me? And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God, notice, with lofty speech or wisdom. I wasn't coming with a silvery tongue and to be slick and to be clever and to be impressive rhetorically. Notice, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was his philosophy, that was his ministry, that was his theology. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the goal of Christian ministry. Faith resting in the power of God in Jesus Christ crucified. Now that kind of faith produces freedom in the person who has it. So beloved, this morning, where does your faith rest? Is it in lofty speech? and the plausible words, and the wisdom of men? Or does your faith rest in the power of God through Jesus Christ? Free people rest their faith in Jesus. Captive people rest their faith in wisdom, philosophy, human tradition, politics, culture, you name it. Christians are free people. And we must protect our freedom by not giving in to the spiritual captivity that comes from any other philosophy apart from Christ. And that's why Paul gives this warning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and vain deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Why? Why? Well, that's the message of verses 9 to 12. You see, verse 9 begins there with the word for. That means because, or for this reason. So the Bible has given us now the reason in verses 9 to 12 for what Paul says in verse 8. And we might put it this way. The reason Paul says maintain your freedom, protect it, don't let anyone take you captive, is so that you might actually enjoy union with Christ. Union with Christ. In these three or four verses, Paul mentions the phrase in him or with him about five or six times. Look there with me. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul uses that phrase, in him and with him, 165 odd times in all of his letters. Five times here in just these couple of sentences. Paul is a man who's gripped with something that Christians don't think much about anymore these days but actually something that older Christians defined as the heart of the gospel and the heart of Christianity. Our union with Christ. That spiritually, our lives as Christians are joined together with Christ's life as God and Lord. And so he mentions it five times in here. In him, in him, with him, with him, in him. And notice there are four ways in which we are united to Christ in this text. Verse 9. We are united in his fullness. In Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily, and we have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 11, we are united with him in his circumcision. This means the old man of sin has been cut off, and through Christ, God circumcises our hearts, which was really what the old circumcision was symbolic of, according to Deuteronomy 10, 16 and 30, verse 6 and Romans 2, 28 and 29. Our hearts now have been circumcised by removing the old man of sin and being circumcised now with Christ. And we are united to him not only in his fullness and in his circumcision, but we are united with him in his death, verse 12. Our death with Christ is symbolized by baptism as we go down with him into that watery grave. His death counted as both the payment for our sin and also our death to sin. And not only his death, but notice the resurrection, verse 12. We united in his resurrection. We are raised from that watery grave just as he was raised from that ancient tomb to newness of life in Christ because we have been joined together with him in his resurrection through faith in the powerful working of God who raises the dead. Now if you stand back from verses 9 and 12, 9 to 12, don't you see the entire course of our Lord's life in these verses? Verse 9 points to our Lord's incarnation. He was always God, But in his incarnation, he joined to himself our humanity so that he can take us who were always human and join to us his own deity. You have been filled with the fullness of God, which is in Christ. And and, and you step back and you see God's, you see our Lord's righteousness in verse 12, verse 11. That reference to circumcision. Well, that was kind of the first act of Jewish obedience, if you will. In the way that baptism is the first act of Christian obedience. And it was symbolic of keeping all God's covenant. And our Lord Jesus Christ comes into the world and he is not only circumcised on the eighth day like a faithful Jewish person would have been, but he obeyed God's commandments to the full. Not breaking his law, not sinning. All of the righteous requirements of God are met in Jesus Christ and we have been joined to him who is himself righteousness and his death. Verse 12, he dies an actual death. He suffers the judgment of God against sin. That's what death is. It's God's curse against sin. And he suffers God's punishments, God's God's unleashing his anger toward the world because of sin. And when he is stretched wide and hung high, and when he dies, he dies in our place to take our place as our representative. And when we come to faith in Christ, we die with him. But not only that, Christ is buried, and three days later, he is raised again from the grave. God, in his great power, reaches into death itself and pulls up his son back into life. And the Bible is telling us here, we are so joined with Christ through faith in Christ that that same power that raised Christ from the dead has raised us up from the dead too. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. In other words, we were dead because of the sins we committed, and we were dead because of the sin nature that we have. We were dead, and we're going to be dead. And God, through his son, said, Live! Wake up to life. Get up from death. And he has joined us with his son so that Paul can say in Galatians 2.20 and we can all say with Paul it is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is what Paul is talking about with all that in him, with him, in him, with him. We have been united to Christ. We have been forged together with him. We have been glued together with Christ spiritually so that everything that happened to Christ is ours through that union. The joining of deity and humanity is ours through union with Christ. The the attainment of perfect righteousness is ours not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. The death that we deserve, we have died with Christ, and the life we can never earn, we have been given as we have been raised with Christ. All of the benefits of Christianity come to us through union, with Christ. This is something the old saints understood. This is something the old saints maintained. John Calvin. That indwelling of Christ in our hearts, that mystical union, is given by us the highest degree of importance. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin, being in Christ and united to him, is the fundamental constitution of a Christian. Jonathan Edwards, by, by virtue of the faith believers' faith union with Christ, he does really possess all things. Come down to modern-day theologians and seminarian professors, Robert Letham. Union with Christ is right at the center of the Christian doctrine of salvation. Lane Tipton. There are no benefits of the gospel apart from union with Christ. Robert Raymond, union with Christ is the fountainhead from which flows the Christians' every spiritual blessing. Todd Billings, union with Christ is theological shorthand for the gospel itself. J.I. Packer, communion between God and man is the end or goal to which both creation and redemption are the means. Communion between God and man is the goal to which both theology and preacher must ever point. Communion between God and man is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity. To be a Christian is to have God the Son live in you and you and him, through the, that indwelling that allows us to possess all that Jesus Christ is and does as if it were us. This, beloved, is spiritual fullness. This is what's missing in the gap between the truths we know and what we experience. It is the habit of too many Christians, myself included, to think too infrequently and too lightly of this mystical reality that Christ lives in us and we live in him. And everything that Jesus is, is ours, not merely by a faith in something out there, it is ours by a presence and a power in here. This is the basis of our freedom. This is why we won't want anyone to take us captive. You with Christ means that Jesus, the Son of God, really does live in you, and you really do live in him. And this is in fulfillment of what Jesus himself prayed in John 17, 21 and 23. Praise to the Father that the Father is in him and he is in the Father and let us be in them and them in us. Christian, do not simply think of Christ as a Savior outside of you who does something for you. Think of Christ as God within you doing things through you. That's what union means. This is what Jesus means when he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. This is what Peter means when he says, we are living stones joined together in a temple in whom God lives by his spirit. This is what Paul means when he says, you are the body of Christ and Christ is the head. In all these ways, the Bible has given us pictures of this almost indescribable truth that God lives in you if you're a Christian. How do we hold on to that? Three things to get us started. Treat as dangerously silly any suggestion that you need more than Jesus to have a full life as a Christian. Mock that, ridicule that, reject that, give no time to that. For if the fullness of God lived in Jesus bodily, and Jesus by his Spirit lives in you, that same fullness is in you. You don't need something outside of Christ to make you satisfied in Christ. It's the second thing. It it, it involves, it requires sanctified imagination. We're going to see this as we continue through Colossians 2 and in Colossians 3 But you'll notice how many times Paul will say something like, think of yourself as dead in Christ. Regard yourself as dead in Christ. We must actively imagine and embrace the truth that our lives are hid in Christ and that he lives in us. So, many of you have often heard it said, preach the gospel to yourself daily. If some of those quotes are right from some of those theologians, that the gospel or union with Christ is shorthand for the gospel, we're not quite preaching the gospel to ourselves daily if we are only reminding ourselves that our sins are nailed to the cross and we have been justified by faith. That's essential. We're not yet finished until we go on to remind ourselves and to think of ourselves as in Christ and with him. United with him in all that he is and all that he has done. That's where that's where the gospel really becomes really good. Really sweet. And that's where our anxieties about the things that are unfulfilled and the things that are undone and the gap between the truth and our behavior, that's where those anxieties are calmed in Christ and our union with him and regarding him As everything that we are not. Not just outside of us, but in us. Remind yourself of that daily, several times a day. You have been united with Christ. Number three, let us think to ourselves that we are not different from the world because we are morally superior. That's going to get you in all kinds of trouble. Beloved, we are different from the world. Because God lives in us. That's the difference. That's that's the difference. That's the world of difference between my old sinful, mean, angry self and my sinful, mean, angry self. That's the difference between who Thabiti be the used to be and, and who Thabiti the is now. That's the, that's the difference between the one who gave himself to his sin and the one now who fights his sin with some measure of victory and joy. That's the difference between the one who delighted in sin and had a taste for it and the one now who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's the difference that's been made in your life. If you are Christ, Christ has moved in. Christ has saved you. Christ has united himself to you, and he has changed you from the inside out by living in you and working himself out. So let us think not primarily that our identity is wrapped up in being Christians and meaning by that we are somehow morally better or we have made the right choice. No, beloved. Our difference, the difference is made in our lives by spiritually being joined to our Savior. And that changes our identity. That changes our purpose. That changes our destiny and our hope. So, just to give you one more application. This one's free. I hope it's helpful. For those of you who struggle with assurance or ever struggled with assurance, it is commonly the case that a struggle with assurance, being sure that you're a Christian, that that will make you look at yourself with a fault finder. And you will identify all the weaknesses in your faith and you will identify all the struggles that you have and you will identify your failures and you will identify the gap between the truth you say you believe and the life that you're living and looking at yourself, you will feel all the more insecure. What if you looked at yourself and said, all of that's true I am imperfect. I do struggle. I sometimes have thoughts I wish I didn't have. But I am joined together with Christ. And he lives in me, and I live in him, and we are inseparable. Wherever he goes, I'm going. Jesus is going to glory. I'm going to glory too. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where I'm seated right now. Jesus is coming again in power and in glory, and I'm going to ride with him. I'm going to click up and ride wherever Christ goes because he's in me and I'm in him, and we are united forever. In the same way that Christ carries our humanity and his incarnation into glory even now, so he will carry all of humanity with him into glory, never to be separated again from his people. That's your future. That's your hope. That's your destiny. Oh, you may always think of yourself as joined together with Christ in an unbreakable union that will lead you safely home. This is the gospel. This is Christianity. God in his people, his people in him. So we must protect our freedom. So that we can enjoy our union with Christ. Number three, in order to maintain our victory through Christ. So Paul gives us verse 8 so that we don't lose verses 13 to 15. And he gives us verses 12 or verses 9 to 12 so that we might be sure in the middle. So verses 13 to 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You can write one word over these three verses, Victory. victory, victory. And in these three verses, we're told that Christ has become our victor. He has achieved victory for us in three things. Number one, he's achieved for us victory over death. You see it there in verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him. And notice again, it is together with him. This resurrection occurs through union with Christ. We were dead in our trespasses, that sin's the actual acts of sin, trespassing or crossing the borders of God's law, and we were dead in the uncircumcision of our flesh. That is our sin nature. We sin because we're sinners. Apart from Christ, it is in our nature to do wrong, to transgress God's law. The deeper problem isn't the action of sin. The deeper problem is the heart of sin. And so we were dead. And we were going to remain dead. The thing about being a dead man is you can't do nothing about it. We were physically alive, but we were spiritually dead and powerless. We were all like prisoners on death row. We walked by and the angels of heaven saw us and they all shouted, dead man walking. Dead man walking. Until God the Father acted By raising Jesus the Son from the grave and raising us from spiritual death to life through faith in Christ. Then the most desperate condition of all was reversed. And our enemy, death, was finally defeated. Beloved, notice here. It's by faith in the powerful working of God who raises the dead Never think lightly of the fact that God raises the dead. Our whole faith is built upon it. He did it with his son, and in his son, he does it with us. And this is not just theology, beloved. This is practical doctrine. So you remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul was talking about all the things that had happened to him. He'd been shipwrecked, left for dead. I imagine him floating on some, on some piece of wood out in the ocean, salt water, licking up wounds. And, and he says, I had the sentence of death written in me. He said, I wanted to die. And then he says this, like a lightning bolt struck him. But God raises the dead. I mean, in all of his sufferings, the thing that came to him as comfort was this fact. God raises the dead. Now, if God raises the dead, there ain't no circumstance we're in that we ought to be troubled by. Even if this leads to death, God, you can get me back up. I'll ask Lazarus. I'll call Lazarus for testimony. And and I'll ask all those who got up out of the grave at your resurrection who were seen in the city of Jerusalem who had been dead and buried for a long time and now people are seeing resurrected folks. And and I'll ask your son. And I'll ask that man that Paul raised from the dead because Paul's sermon was long and he fell out the window and died. You Remember? I'm in good company. God has not left us without a witness even to his power to raise the dead. What suffering have you that that kind of power cannot address? He has conquered death. But notice, secondly, he has conquered debt. He's conquered debt. Now, I ain't, this ain't the, the craft little dollar portion of the sermon. If, if you done ran up your credit cards and you done got behind in your rent, God said that's on you because he told you to pay the bills and he told you to live within your means. That ain't the debt we're talking about. Verse 13 and 14. He made us alive together with Christ by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our sin put us in God's debt. We owed satisfaction to God for all the ways that we had wronged Him, and our debt could not be paid back with money, and it could not be paid back with good works. Listen, when you are in your sin apart from Christ, life is little more than a debtor's prison. You are awaiting execution for all of the wrongs that you have committed before God. This is the record of God's legal demands against us. if heaven has opened the books, and it has read the records of our sins against God. And for every record, there, every sin, there is there a penalty under his law. And so we've got a long record. All of us have rap sheets. You know, don't let us never look at the brother who's coming or the sister who's coming out of incarceration kind of down our nose as if they're some kind of unworthy individual when God is looking at us and saying, no, bro, your rap sheet, much longer. You got a record of debts that you could never take care of. All of us are together condemned because of our sin. But notice this now. The gospel is so good. The penalty for sin is death. That's why we're dead in our trespasses and sin and why we weren't even ever going to ever spiritually get out of that debt. And it was right that we be mean in that judgment because God has said from Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis, when you sin, you're going to die. That's the penalty for our, our, our sin. But now God, through Jesus Christ, paid all of our debt of sin. Not some of it. Not the easy parts of it. He Paid it all. He canceled our debt. This means that the cross, when our bill was presented to God, the Father stamped it, the bill, in blood-red letters, canceled, paid in full. He set the debt aside by nailing it to the cross. What's hanging on the cross? The Son of God with our record of debt. Just the other week, Christy and I were coming back from the Just Gospel Conference, and she and Titus and I went into a, a restaurant in the airport to get some lunch before our flight. And in the restaurant, we saw several people who had been to the conference, and they kindly greeted us, and, and we went on took our, our table in the restaurants. They all left before we did. We had a, several hours before our flight, so we lingered a little bit. And uh, it was time for us to go, I, I signaled to the young lady that was waiting on us, and she came over and said, can I get the bill? And, and she brought me back the little black thing and put it on the table. I, I put my card in, and she said, oh, you don't do that. I said, what? Your brother like free stuff, but I ain't trying to catch a case, right? So I, I said, what? She says, no, 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 that's been taken care of. I said, what? She says, yeah. She says, it was a table that paid your bill. I said, Really? And she says, you must be popular or something because there were three tables arguing to pay your bill." I'm like, they ought to go with me to restaurants all the time. I don't know where they've been all my life, right? And so, and so I said to her, I said, well, let me at least leave you a tip. She said, no, they got that too. Hold my meal, right? There we were, sitting in a restaurant, full from a great meal. And one of our favorite spots with a bill marked pain, and we were free to go. That's what God has done for us in Christ at the cross. Jesus picked up the tab. He paid it in full. And now because of the cross and our union with Christ, our debt is paid, we are full, and we are free. And there's one more enemy Christ defeated for us. Not only death and debt, but the devil himself. Look there, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities refer to fallen angels and the demonic realm. refers to Satan and all of his demons. They operate in high places and they have corrupted the world system to serve them. They are rebellion against God, and because they hate God, they hate God's people. But look at what God has done. Through Jesus, he noticed disarmed the demons. He just snatched the weapons out of their hands. He stripped them of all their power and all of their armory. The prophet says, no weapon formed against me shall prosper. I don't think we know how deep that sentence goes. But Christ has disarmed Satan, and he has disarmed our enemies. Then the Lord put Satan and his enemies, notice, to an open shame. In the ancient world, kings and armies, a victorious king, would, would lead the captive army back to his capital city. And there'd be a great parade through that city. And, and in that parade, near the end, would be sort of shackled and handcuffed and tied by rope, drug along, would be the enemy king and anybody in his army that was spared. And as they were paraded through the streets, the the people of that city would mock those folks and jeer those folks and, and rejoice at the victory their king had won. It's called a triumph. This is what Paul has in mind here when he says he put them to an open shame, triumphing over them by Christ. All of this happens in him, in Jesus Christ. All of this happens for us, for those who were dead in sin, but now made alive together with Christ through faith in him. Christian. Rejoice in your victory every day. Paraded before you, defeated and disarmed are all of your enemies, especially Satan. Conquered by your king, put to an open shame before the universe, you stand with holy angels applauding the victory of Christ. You stand with holy angels with your enemy trampled beneath your feet. You in Christ are victorious over everything, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And my non-Christian friend, as we close, all that we have been discussing, God freely offers you. This morning, God offers you freedom. Freedom from sin, freedom from guilt, freedom from shame. This morning God offers you himself. He's not just going to forgive you from some far off place and just retort, just with words say, you are forgiven. No, you are so forgiven that he makes you a part of himself. You and him and he and you. And this morning God offers you the cancellation of all your debt, victory over death, victory over the demonic realm. What are you waiting for? This is the full life, the abundant life that God has designed for you. This is the life that he calls you to come and receive through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. All that Christ has done is nothing for you as long as you remain apart from Christ. But all that Christ has done completely belongs to you if you come to him in faith and are united to Christ. Run to Jesus. Confess your sin. Turn away from it. Call upon his name and you will be rescued from death rescue from judgment, join to Christ, live forever in the victory that Jesus secures. What are you waiting on? Confess your sin to God. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, crucified, buried, and resurrected. And follow Him, not at a distance, but from inside of Him and Him inside of If you want to know more about that, talk with us after the service. But this day, believe on Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, how can we thank you for all that you have done for us? In fact, you have left nothing undone. All that we needed in terms of a perfect righteousness You provided in obedience to the Father. And all that we needed in a sin bearer, a scapegoat, someone to take the blame, you volunteered for on the cross. And all that we needed in a power that could defeat death so that we could live forever in heaven, you demonstrated in your resurrection. And you are working that same power in us who believe. You are the only Savior. You are the sufficient Savior. And, And the wonder of it all is that you are our Savior through faith. We pray that even now you would give the gift of faith and repentance to some soul here who came in not yet believing. Let them leave united to you. And we pray that even now, among those who came in as Christians, filling the gap, we pray you would fill that gap with yourself and with our union with you, all for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.